Tandem Talk is a quarterly financial podcast sharing history, insight, and market commentary from Tandem's investment team. This podcast was created to give our clients and partners an opportunity to eavesdrop on the team's conversations. It gives the listener a way to hear from our team, understand our thought process and investment philosophy, and get to know a little bit more about us. Since we can't have you all in our office, we thought we would take our office to the listener and give you a seat at the table. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we do creating Tandem Talk. We invite you to join the conversation. Ask us a question by emailing us at information at tandemadvisors.com or suggest a topic for us to cover on our next episode. And now we turn you over to Tandem's investment team of John Carew, Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson. You're listening to Tandem Talk. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Tandem Talk 11. It's good to have you back. I am joined, as always, by Billy Little. Hello, everyone. Ben Carew. Hey, how's it going? Jordan Watson. Hey. And yours truly, John Carew. We are the investment team at Tandem, and we are here to share thoughts as to what has happened since the last time we got together, which was in November, I believe, right? Um, A lot's gone on. Uh, We ended the year with the S&P down 19-ish percent, I think, gentlemen, Um, which from my perspective, uh, I I know this isn't necessarily a popular view, but that was way better than it could have or perhaps should have been, um, sort of the way I look at things. We started 2023 off with a bang. (laughs) It's been red hot. (laughs) Yeah, so... So where are we? Well, the S&P is up 7.5% year-to-date. NASDAQ is up almost twice that, probably closer to 14%. Russell's up around 10%, 9%, 10%. Things have been screaming hot. Consensus coming into this year was, I think, everyone was positioned for the same trade. It was market was going to continue going down. I mean, it was going down in December. It was going to continue going down through the first half of the year. Um, And then eventually in the second half of the year, the Fed will come to the rescue, cut rates, market will shoot back higher. Where we end the year, nobody knows. But it was going to be a down first half and a positive second half. None of that has happened. (laughs) Um, And that's typically the way it works. Um, It's... It can be tough following consensus. Usually the trade goes against consensus. When everyone's on one side of the boat, the other thing happens. Um, so here we are. We're the, the market is, like Ben said, market's been red hot since the start of the year. Um, and it's caught some people off, off sides um, that probably weren't pos- positioned for it. Um, but, you know, what we kind of talked about, I think it was last time, I know we've written about it a few times, is the story is going to be about earnings and it's going to be about the path of interest rates. Um, I'm guessing that's something we will get to in the near future here. Yeah, just to sort of piggyback off of that, Billy, everything that you said about consensus is exactly right. I mean, some of the best performers this year have been some of those stocks that were the most shorted. And you've really seen what sort of started, it seems, like as a short-covering rally maybe grow legs into something a little bit stronger than just short covering, but that's the pocket of the market that's done the best year to date or really even going back to October um, when the when the market started to find its footing a little bit more. 
is really some of the more sort of uh, heavily shorted places. So the things that were doing the worst in the first three quarters of 2022 have been what's working and so far over the last four or five months. And it's not, and especially this past month, it's not, not everything is working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you look at in, the, in January, consumer staples were down. Healthcare was Utilities down. Utilities having a rough Utilities go. were down. Yeah. Um, so it's, it is, it's the pockets that were, that perform that performed the worst last year. Uh, some of the least profitable companies, the weakest balance sheet companies, right. they're the ones that have that have really done the best. Even to more cyclical pockets, like semis have been doing oh, extraordinarily yeah. well over the past four or five months, which are typically a more cyclical part of the market. It's interesting how it sort of snowballs on itself as well, right? Um, you get the most shorted stocks that begin to rally, and the rally begins to broaden out and expand. And we talked about people were sort of offsides on positioning. And then you get a technical breakout and you get a golden cross, right, with the 50-day crossing above the 200. And then momentum traders start to get in and it sort of uh, becomes a feedback loop, if you will. It's how every bull market starts. I mean, it, every bull market typically starts with the the worst performing stocks, the, the least quality stocks starting to perform the best they lead us out and then everything else so it's is this the start of something who knows but this is how it starts so let's back up for just a second because ben sort of spoke to this a minute ago um 2022 is perceived by most to have been a a a bad or painful year i suggested it wasn't as bad as it could have or perhaps should have been in the fourth quarter the S&P was up over 7%, right? And then it was up again in January by more than 7%. So is this something that has pivoted? Did we have a, did we have a bear market? Does it matter? Um, are we out of the woods? Are we forward-looking? I know that economic data is very conflicting. Mm-hmm. Um, unemployment is at a historic low which I personally think is is more bearish than bullish, but the market certainly perceives it to mm-hmm. be bullish, right? I mean, when you're at full employment, where else is there to go but, <laughs> but worse, right? Um, so we're four months and change into this, although February has begun very differently than January uh, felt. But so let's let's... One thing... You've, you've talked about sectors and everything, but, but really, where are we? I mean, from the beginning of this, whenever we think that is, we've come pretty far, right? Yeah. I think to Billy and Jordan's point, a lot of the things that you're seeing in the market do typically happen around the start of a new bull market. But one thing that is missing, I think from that equation, this doesn't mean that a bull market can't be starting or that we're not in the start of a bull market. But one thing that's missing, is probably the valuation aspect of that because valuations are not cheap right now. I mean, if you exclude the COVID years of 20 and 21. The S&P right now is trading at 18 and a half Sounds times. Sounds like a movie or a serial, <laughs> the COVID years. But the S&P is trading at 18 and a half times forward earnings right now. X 2020 and X 2021, that's at a 20-year high. I mean, when you start comparing valuations to the expected growth going forward, because you're going to have an earnings contraction in Q4, it's currently set to decline in Q1 and Q2 again. So when you compare that valuation to the expected growth looking forward, it's an even more bleak picture. And it gets even worse when you compare valuations to 
yields because there's finally something else besides equities that you can turn to and generate a yield. Yeah, right I now. agree. The valuations are historically expensive. And they're, when you've looked at the past 15 years, 20 years of, of data, where we are from a earnings multiple and where we are on a short-term interest rates, whether you look at the one month or the three month, we are twice as high in the one month and three month yield as every time we topped out at basically these levels. So well, you mean like the Fed's normally cutting when we so actually bought them? Is that so sort of what you mean? So in 2018, we were basic. We were essentially at 18 and a half times when right. we got really frothy in 17, right? And then we peaked in January, January 26 of 2018. That was the peak of the market, right? And that was 18 and a half times. The one month was trading at 2.3% at that point. We're at 4.6% right now. Right. So when looking just relative to rates, mm-hmm. we're even more expensive. Right, right. Got it. That. Got that's, it. That's my no, point. I and just to add to yours, you, you mentioned valuations. The other thing that we also, you know, one thing that happens when we typically come out of a bear market, start of a bull market is the Fed has already cut. Mm-hmm. The Fed is still hiking. Right. Or maybe hike, but we have not cut. We have not gone through a an easing cycle. So some of my more bullish friends would point out that it's not unusual to have excessive valuations at market bottoms because you're anticipating better earnings going forward, right? So you're you're paying for that. Isn't that let's normally talk on about, a- Let's talk about earnings relative to how we're valuing things. Have we bottomed or have we even gone down yet? Isn't that argument, though, typically made on a trailing basis when earnings are at their worst? I don't know that you see high PEs on a forward basis mm-hmm. because your expectations are actually of growth even towards that bottom. So it's, I, I believe that That's that relationship is normally on so a where are we? trailing. Well, you're seeing estimates decline. Okay. I mean, I think that we're, again, ex-COVID, we're looking at the first <laughs> earnings recession, I think, since 15, 15. or 16, uh, which was not a great market. I mean, it was a sideways market with some chop. I think that the market fell 10 to 15%, maybe twice in a six-month period. Uh, so it was a frothier time as well during that earnings recession. No real recession, though, in 15 and 16. But it's not a great earnings outlook either. No, earnings have been underwhelming at best. I mean, they came in the year... 1231, we were supposed to earn for Q4. I think it was supposed to be flat, maybe down a couple percent. We're now down with maybe 60%, 70% of the S&P having reported. We're down about 5% mm-hmm. so far for Q4. We're supposed to be, expectations were flat for Q1. Those have moved down to down two, down 3%. Mm-hmm. Uh, earnings for tw- the whole ye- for the entire calendar year 2023 came into the year at around 227. We're down to about 222 now. Um, so everything has been coming down, which also leads to S&P's up 7%, NASDAQ's up 14%. Earnings are coming down. Things are getting just that much more expensive. Yeah, the bar has certainly been lowered on the earnings front, and yet companies are not beating at nearly the rate that they typically do on average, right? So let's sort of pivot here. We, we're, we've talked about valuations. We're talking about earnings. Let's talk about economic outlook. What, what is going on in the economy? Um, what are interest rates likely to do if we had a crystal ball we could look into? What would it, what would it tell us? Um, right now, 
one of the most reliable precursors of recession, the inverted yield curve, twos versus tens, is screaming, and it has been inverted for a a, a while. A while, right? It's getting more inverted. Right. It's not getting this, better. It's getting worse. Short-term year. rates are still elevated, even though longer-term rates have right. come down somewhat. So, so tell me what what the next six to twelve months, or eighteen months, or however far out you want to go economically, look like to us. Tell me what the Fed's doing. <laughs> <There you laughs> I'll, t- I'll think, tell you what it looks like. Okay. I think that you could look just at the yield curve and see what the market is pricing in, right? I think just a couple of months ago, the highest point on the curve was the two-year. And now it's between the six-month and the one-year is the highest point on the curve, right? So that would tell you the market is pricing. The Fed will be done hiking likely by mid-year, right? I believe the market is still actually pricing in some cuts at the back half of this year. Um, So I think that if you just look at the yield curve and how that has changed over time, it almost serves as a prediction market to what the path of future interest rates might look like. Are you buying that, though? I mean, you had Powell on the tape yesterday talking about how if jobs continue to be strong, they're going to keep going. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've seen them give the indication that, I mean, they have room to continue to be hawkish, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It still seems sort of far-fetched to me with food prices still rising. Mm -hmm. I think used car sales were up the most since 2021 uh, in the month of January. Inflation is still going on. You're seeing tips start to pick back up on yield. So all of that sort of points towards inflation isn't done yet. Mm -hmm. Powell's talking a lot about disinflation. Jordan, I think he said some stat in the trading room the other day. He said it like 13 times or something like that on his most recent presser, but they still have a lot of room to go if they want to continue to hike. So are you guys actually buying that they're going to be cutting by Q4? I think unless the economy really takes a turn for the worse, then they're likely not to cut. They'll probably hike one to two more times, get the terminal rate five, five and a quarter, and stay there and wait and see mode to see what happens with inflation, right? Because big, a big risk could be a reacceleration in inflation, mm-hmm. right? And happened during cer- the seventies, right? Yeah, yeah. They certainly there's don't also, want that to happen. There's also a risk similar to what happened in the seventies. That so, look, what was the highest print for inflation? Eight something, right? Year over year, nine percent. Nine percent year yeah. over year. So that was outrageous, and it was painful, and I think everybody felt that. And I, my perception is that. We're beginning to think that inflation is less of a problem because we're running at an annualized rate of, what What are we now, five, six, plus six? Six, four in December. Okay. That's really high. <laughs> yeah, that's still I mean, really that's bad. that's crazy <laughs> high. Yeah, it's better than nine. Yeah. I, I grant you that. But you can't just assume that you're on a trend to two in a reasonable period of time just because we've gone from nine to six, four, right? Yeah. The Fed has to combat that sense of complacency. I actually, you know, I don't know when uh, when listeners will have this hit their inbox, but we're set to get a, another inflation read in the next month. And I think that the year over year, John, sort of to your point, is expected to continue to decelerate. But the month over month is actually set to accelerate again. So if you just look at one number, then you can get a, this happy, good feeling that the worst is behind us. But when you look at something like a month over month, which can be really short to look at, but mm-hmm. I mean, you are seeing some things begin to reaccelerate, 
to your point, inflation's not really done. Even if it's heading in the right direction, it still doesn't mean it's all good. If we go to 4%, it's still too high, right? right? It's still right. too high, and unemployment's at 3.4. Yeah. Right. You're, you're, not, you're not cutting in that scenario. And what, what I find intriguing about the whole, a, a lot of the bullish case is hinges on rate cuts, and the Fed cutting rates in the back half of the year. The Fed is not going to cut rates with the S&P at 4,200. It is not happening. So the only way to get to that point is probably for the market to go down. So that's what's going to cause the Fed to cut rates. Mm. The market is going to have to go through some type of trouble for them to be forced to cut rates. They're not doing it here. How, How crazy is it that financial conditions are looser today than they were 10, 11 months ago? You know... You said that recently, and I'd like you to explain that. Their interest rates are significantly higher. So how are financial conditions looser? What do you mean by that? Spreads are actually mm-hmm. tightening. You're seeing spreads come into... Spreads between what? Credit spreads. Okay. Really Corporate anyway. That, yeah. Okay. Junk bond over treasury. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. I think that's down to maybe like 80 basis points or something mm-hmm. like that. So you're seeing spreads tighten. You're seeing the market rally. You're seeing basically the way that there's three components of it and you're seeing easing across all three. There's risk, there's leverage, and there's credit. And I believe that they have all been easing over the past four or five months, but they've been easing at enough of a pace to where you're actually lower than where you were last February. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing financial conditions ease, even though what the Fed is saying they want is tighter financial conditions. And that's Mm -hmm. why, I mean, Powell can be dovish all day long, but they seem to have a lot of runway in terms of continuing to go because things are easier today mm-hmm. than they were last year when they were hiking at 75 basis points a meeting. Mm-hmm. I would just add it's remarkable how much price changes sentiment or price actually is sentiment. When yeah. the S&P was at 3,600 in October, everyone was screaming recession coming, recession coming. Now that we're up to 4,200, consensus is soft landing, no recession. If we have one, very mild. Just remarkable how... Quick I think price can change. I think that's sentiment. a fascinating point about, I think, human nature. And, you know, when we're talking about tandem with advisors and their clients, one of the things that I always say is at market highs, r- obviously wrongly with the benefit of hindsight, but when everything is working, people perceive there to be less risk, right? Mm-hmm. Everything feels great. The market is going higher. Unemployment is low. Everything, you know, inflation is decelerating. Less risk today than there was six months ago. But six months from now, will that really be the case? Because we know that there was way less risk after seven Fed hikes (laughs) than there was before any Fed hikes, right? Market was at all-time highs and interest rates were at zero, and people were just happy and complacent, and that was the riskiest time we've Mm -hmm. seen in recent memory, right? So, Jordan, I think you make a great point about perception and price, but that doesn't mean we have it right, does it? Um, It just just seems to me that, that when things are working, we think risk has gone away, and from my perspective, I think that means risk is elevating. Yeah, that's a fair point. You know what is sort of a risk out there that gets talked about because you see it in headlines. 
but I feel like it's not really talked about enough. And I don't know if y'all have any input on it, but you're seeing company after company after company announce layoffs. I'm sitting here looking to my right and I see that Disney just announced that they're laying off 7,000 people. I mean, you're seeing that every single day. And it's, I wonder when that will start to show up because we did just have a record jobs report or a record unemployment rate and a, a great jobs report. But when will those layoffs start to really take effect? Are people really turning around and finding jobs that quickly? They're laying off 7,000 people at Disney, but then they all go find jobs. I mean, is that what's happening? And you're starting to see it brought out from just the technology sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and ADP said, you know, one of our quoting said something similar where, you know, the headline is technology is Google's laid off. I'm making this up 30,000 people and Facebook is laid off 10,000 people and just go down the list. Um, but it's not, it had, it had not been feeding over to the broader, broader sectors. Mm. Um, you're now starting to see it hit other companies. It's certainly lagging too. When it starts with tech and sort of the biggest companies in the world, right? When they lay people off, there's severance packages. They're going to continue paying them for months, provide them with benefits, right? So you're not seeing those people show up in initial claims. Billy, to your point, as it sort of broadens um, and reaches more sectors of the economy, right? It starts with the larger companies. It's ultimately going to feed down to medium and small businesses, right? Um, I think that is when you'll see that really start to accelerate in terms of job losses or initial claims starting to rise. I would suggest that like everything else in this post-pandemic world, nothing is as clear, (laughs) nothing Mm -hmm. is as it once seemed, right? And so here's what strikes me as interesting. All-time low or 50-year low unemployment rate. Yet that comes at the same time that the labor participation rate... That's just what I was about to say. Well, then you go. No, 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 you, you go for it. more formed thought No, 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 I, I wasn't trying to interrupt. It, it, you're spot on, right? If, if we have high participation rate and low unemployment, layoffs become more impactful, mm-hmm. don't they? But with a lower participation rate, I think you need... More, not that I'm rooting for anything here. If you've lost your job, that's terrible. But, but I just think the economy has more room to absorb you into another job quicker than if we're at full participation and virtually zero unemployment. A, a low participation rate also makes it a lot easier to attain a low, low unemployment, unemployment rate, right? right? And so it's. It's this number that keeps getting touted as being remarkable and that everything is all right, but there's sort of an asterisk by it. I mean, it's sort of like Barry Bonds hitting 70-plus home runs, right? <laughs> I mean, there's an asterisk next to that record, and there should be next to the most recent unemployment rate. So we're rate. not going to vote this economy <laughs> in the Hall of Fame, right? I wouldn't. Would you? Well, some no. writers would. <laughs> no, I think that's an interesting point. Um, so if I may, um, we've, we've started with valuations in the market. We've talked about earnings. We've talked about the direction of rates. We've talked about the economy. Now let's talk about the impact uh, to us. And, and, and let's begin with the, with the usual tandem disclaimer. We have opinions about all of this, but fortunately for our end-user clients, none of our opinions have any bearing on how we invest because it's all just math, right? But so let's 
let's drill down to the portfolio level. Look, relatively speaking, uh, I would I would imagine that nearly all of our clients had a had a relatively good year last year, um, and are in a good place today. Um, but what is this bear market turned quasi bull market uh, doing inside our portfolio or portfolios? Anybody want to take a crack at that? I mean, throughout all of last year, it's given us a bunch of opportunity on both sides to yeah. to buy, add initial positions, take new positions add to existing core positions. It's given us opportunity to take some off the table. Um, and then most recently, it's, it's again, this recent market move has given us the chance to uh, pair back a little bit in BlackRock, pair back a little bit in Stryker, finish out the liquidation in old-time core holding T-Row price. Can we talk about that for just a second? We can. The T-Row price liquidation? I just want to point out, that, um, you know, that's been a holding at this firm without interruption for 26 years, right? We bought it in December, I think, of 1996 Mm -hmm. for the first time. So for any of you listeners out there that are skeptical that it really is just math, it really is just math. There's no sentimentality (laughs) here. Yeah. It's more (laughs) fun having something in the portfolio that you can say you've held that long, but doesn't meet the criteria, so it's gone. We've held that position longer than most in this room have been alive. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, audience, we have have others in the room with us that are not (laughs) on on microphone today. Um, So I just wanted to bring that up, that it was was time to go because the math said it was time to go, and and we're okay with that. So you were saying BlackRock and Stryker and a liquidation of T-Row, and I didn't mean to derail you. Yeah, no, and we've... Now it's 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 one of those. It's kind of wait and see what the next move is. I mean, th- there are several companies in the portfolio that are getting increasingly more attractive. Like we mentioned, a lot of what has r- what has rallied the most has been some of the least quality companies. Um, I maybe I'm biased of this, but the math says so that we buy pretty quality companies. Um, and they're not the ones that are the Carvanas of the world that have gone up, whatever it's been, 400% <laughs> since the beginning of the year. And, oh, by the way, it's we, still... We don't own Aren't that? they still we going bankrupt? It's still, <laughs> still down 95%. It's still down 95% from its high. Do you remember when, I think it was Hertz during the pandemic, was mm-hmm. literally teetering on the verge of solvency, and the stock went up? I think they were even already insolvent, and the stock was going up like I that. Mean, I mean, it, it was yeah. crazy. You're seeing some of that. That just happened with Bed Bath & Beyond. Bed Bath & Beyond, yeah. yeah. Um, it went up, whatever it went up. Dead stock walking. 50, 60, 70%, and the next day it was down 40%. <laughs> um, so, but, but we are seeing you know, some of those quality companies come back in um, where their earnings have not fallen off a cliff, but their price also hasn't gone up as much as some of these other companies that have in the, over the past four weeks. So, um, you know, there's nothing sitting there just screaming cheap or undervalued. As Ben mentioned, the market as a whole is fairly expensive, but there are quality companies coming, coming back into us. So I, Oh, go ahead. Oh, you can go ahead. Well, I just want to say that to the listener out there who perceives this to be timing, 
market timing, because we're talking about the market and opportunities within our portfolio. I know what the difference is. Long-term clients know what the difference is. But to the new listener, explain why this isn't market timing. So everything's happening at the individual stock level, right? I mean, we're following this process one company at a time. So if our quantitative model, our process tells us that this stock is overvalued, then we'll take some money off the table, right? If our quantitative model, our process tells us that this stock is unsustainably undervalued, then we're going to add some to the position. Now, where people, I think, can sometimes confuse it with market timing is when you're getting a lot of signals on sort of uh, one side of the equation, paired back some strikers, some BlackRock, and finished T. Rowe. Well, there's been more things to sell over the past month and a half than there has been to buy. So naturally, you see cash go up in the portfolio. But it's not because the market has done this. I mean, there's been times where you've been in the midst of a bear market, but one name has gone up, and so we're able to take money off the table. The flip side, that's also true. I mean, there's times where we're buying when the market's at all-time highs because some other name has already gotten beat up. So it's really not about market timing or even timing individual names, right? I mean, this isn't meant to be a timing mechanism. It's just saying, hey, this thing's deviated from its normal behavior. Mm -hmm. It's worth taking a look. If it's deviated and become cheap, then maybe it's worth buying. If it's deviated and become expensive, then maybe it's worth paring back some of your exposure. And I think that's where it's been really nice having this style of management in a year like last year and what we've seen this year. Because if you truly make it your job to buy low and sell high, then you have so much more ability to be nimble. And it's buying low and selling high specific companies that meet our criteria or selling ones that no longer do. It's not about what the market was doing. And I thought that you said that very well, Ben, but I would I would just sort of hasten to add, look, we are directionally influenced by the market. What we own on a day-to-day basis probably moves in a direction, in, in the same direction as, as the market. And the bigger those market movements are in the short run, the more names that we own or might like to own uh, fall into that net, right, of, mm-hmm. of big market swing. So you might see more activity when the market is up or down dramatically, but that really has nothing to do with the market. It has more to do with how many names it's taking with it, right? Is that mm-hmm. a fair yeah, way to say Yeah, that's a really that? fair point. The more, the more violent the swing, whether it's up or down, the more likely you are to see correlations head towards one, mm-hmm. right? And you see sort Which of... Which means uh, everything behaves the same right. or similarly, right? And there are always outliers though, right? Sure, yeah. Um, I had an interesting question from a client today, and I thought it, it sort of bears bringing up. This is more of informational slash educational. Um, but in 2022, and in my opinion, this was part of T. Rowe Price's downfall, fall from grace. In 2022, you had stocks and bonds in bear markets simultaneously. I've been doing this for 38 years, and I can tell you with all certainty, that's pretty rare. (laughs) Um, So the question that was posed to me was, how did that happen? Bonds are supposed to be a safe haven. Mm -hmm. What happened? Who wants to take a crack at answering that? I would just say when yields get so low and the duration of the bond becomes so extended, right, then any sort of 
quick move in interest rates higher is going to exacerbate the price decline in the bond, right? We got so Because people low. have gone further out in maturity to try to capture yeah, whatever to, yield to they capture can. Is yield. That right? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. So as you get close to zero, in some cases, I mean, we had trillions of dollars of negative yielding debt around the globe, right? Major central banks had a funds rate that was in negative territory, <laughs> right? So as you get interest rates that are increasing sort of off of those historic lows, the price decline just gets exponentially greater in a shorter period of time. And if you look at, you said, the, I think you're broadly talking about the market having gone down. When you look at the composition of the market, the S&P 500, the, what were the five biggest companies in there? They're technology stocks mm-hmm. um, that made up, I don't, you guys might, might know the number off the top of your head, but it was the largest concentration mm-hmm. ever of top five companies. Um, and, and so when you've got technology leading the way that is influenced even more by increases, decreases in the interest rate, um, I think that had some effect to the broader market going Definitely. down because we owned several stocks that did not go down Definitely. last year. I think, a, I think that the Fed and global central banks taking interest rates down to zero really sort of broke down some of those historical relationships, John, that you've seen during your 38-year career. Because as you saw interest rates go to zero, everything that Jordan was talking about with duration was, I mean, he said it way better than I could. That was a very intelligent answer, and I'm not going to try to repeat it. But what Jordan was saying was true. He is well-dressed today, so. (laughs) He is. And because interest rates were at zero, then all of a sudden this huge premium was placed on growth, which is what Billy was talking about, right? And so it's really because of where interest rates were that everybody was pushed into the same trade where you were seeking duration or you were seeking growth and what performed poorly last year, duration and growth. And it's all sort of connected in that sense. And Y'all's you've even seen it. were way better than the one I gave. <laughs> <laughs> I hope she's listening. <laughs> I just pointed out that interest rates and bond prices move in opposite directions. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a given, right? And so you have a dramatic rise in rates, you have a dramatic decline in prices. But you've seen that snapback. I like your (laughs) answers way more. You've seen that snapback this year, though. I mean, you're seeing long-dated treasuries keep pace with equities. That's not supposed to happen either, right? So it feels better for people that are in a 60-40 this year, I would imagine, because bonds are appreciating value. But I still wouldn't say that that's your normal healthy relationship between the two. I don't know that long-dated treasuries, you would expect them to be up 6% in a month like they were in January. I have sort of an esoteric question here, and this was probably better asked a year ago, but I didn't think of it a year ago, so I'm going to ask it now. M2, money supply, is probably the best measure of liquidity in the marketplace. Is that that fair? Mm Mm-hmm. Is there a correlation that we can track between M2 and volatility? It seems to me that the more liquidity we have in the marketplace, the more we have people piling into things, whether it's an alternative currency or uh, some option strategy Mm -hmm. or long-dated fixed income. Do we... If we don't know the answer to that, we can move on. But I'm just curious, how big of an effect on these things do we think the 
amount of liquidity in the system has? In the short term, and probably even bleeding some into the medium term, liquidity is a massive mover. I still think that if you're talking long term, though, you're talking a decade or, or whatever, I'd rather invest alongside valuations than invest alongside liquidity in the next year. But if you're trading, liquidity is probably one of the most important things <laughs> to but it, doesn't, right? doesn't liquidity beget traders? I don't know. We might be in. We might be out over our skis with this conversation. No, I mean you certainly saw it right right when the government was cutting people checks and they were going out and buying crypto and meme stocks. I mean you certainly saw liquidity beget. You know, I haven't exuberance. Heard, I haven't heard the phrase meme stock in a little while now. <laughs> I haven't yeah. heard anybody referring to Reddit in a little while now. So maybe that is starting to dissipate a little bit. Yeah. But I just I I, I want to sort of bring this conversation full circle. I think we've talked about broad and drilled down to, to concentrated. And, and the one thing that I loved hearing the most was, was Billy pointing out that we actually had plenty of stocks that went up in 2022. Um, so we think that the portfolio is in a good place. We own names that have demonstrated the ability to grow through whatever we call this economic environment, as well as previous ones, including a pandemic and a financial crisis, right? We own one fewer name today than mm -hmm. we did the last time we were all together, I think. Um, we have a little bit more cash than we did the last time we were all together, I think. Um, we love the portfolio that we have. We don't mean to spread any concern to the audience because we point out possibilities, good and bad. Um, we think we're, we hope we're positioned for whatever comes our way because we're not paying attention to the broader market. We're, we're identifying businesses that meet our criteria and we are hopefully buying low and selling high. Does anybody have anything they want to add to that? No, I think you covered it. You know, they can't hear your head shaking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, this has been fun. I love doing this. Um, congratulations, gentlemen, on another episode. Episode 11 is now in the books. I'd like to thank Jordan Watson, Ben Carew, Billy Little. I'm John Carew. Until next time. Tandem Talk is hosted by Tandem's investment team of John Carew, Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson. Tandem Talk is co-produced by Elaine Natoli, Julia Hoffman, and Lindsay Collins with LMC Sound System. Nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as recommendation to buy or sell any security, nor construed as financial or investment advice. Tandem Investment Advisors Incorporated does not represent that the securities, products, or services discussed on this podcast are suitable for any particular investor. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consult your financial advisor before making any investment decisions. All past portfolio purchases and sales are available upon request.